Corinthians chapter 11 and entitled the message, The Marks of Messengers, plural. In this chapter, as you know, Paul is using the folly of these false apostles, he calls them pseudo-apostles, to unmask their disguise. Paul uses the same Greek word three times in verses 13 through 15. It's the English word transforming or transformed, which means to disguise or to assume the appearance of one. One translation uses the word masquerade, masquerading apostles. If you've ever been to a masquerade, all the attendees wear costumes and masks Sometimes there's a person you know, but you cannot discern because their costume and mask is so good. It's not until they speak or walk or some mannerism about them that you recognize. So in this chapter, in these chapters, the last section of this letter, what Paul is doing is comparing his ministry, he's a true apostle, with their ministry supposed as false apostles, And what his aim is, is to unmask the false apostles for the church of Corinth and for us as well. So we'll compare, as Paul did, certain aspects about himself that he reveals in this portion, and then certain aspects that are true of false teachers. Now, a word of caution, we can't identify who false teachers are. Paul could, by the inspiration of the Spirit, and they know who he's talking about. Sometimes he will name them by name as he does to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. But here, unnamed, but everybody in the church knows who these intruders are from Jerusalem, these Jews. And so Paul is calling them out. He knows. What we can do, though, is recognize the teaching, recognize the fruit of false teachers because we are susceptible to it. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. They're masquerading as sheep. But inwardly they are ravening wolves. How will you know them? By their fruits. So you can't identify them by looking at them. You can't see that that must be a false teacher. It's only something about them, the fruits that they bear, that will eventually show who they are. And so as we look at this subject, we'll look at a few things, as many as we can get to this morning without uh, overlooking the time. The first thing, the first contrast we draw in the marks of the false messengers versus the true, is that the false exalt or lift themselves up, but the true lay themselves low. Paul uses a word to express this in verse 12 where he says, But what I do, that I will do. What is he doing? He is boasting. He's using folly. He's answering the fool according to their folly with sarcasm and irony. He says, I will continue to do that. Why? that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be even found as we. For such, in verse 12, are pseudo-apostolos. They are false apostles. The word occasion is a military term. It means a base from which to launch an attack. So these false apostles are attacking Paul's ministry, for which he will use that to cut off occasion and unmask them. They are attacking the church at Corinth through their deceptive works, and the base from which they're launching their attack is found in the word glory, wherein they desire occasion, a base to launch attack. Paul says that base is they vaunt themselves. They boast in themselves. Not the kind of boasting Paul is doing, for the sake of the church, which he calls folly, but a boasting that governs who they are. They are proud, false apostles. Now, the truth be known, you and I struggle with pride. But what Paul is saying here, false teachers are governed by proud. This is who they are. They are vaunting. They speak loftily. They speak highly. They lift themselves up, but they cover it with a mask. Now, the Bible speaks often about the characteristics of pride, not just the pride we struggle with, but the pride of false apostles. When Paul 
Or rather, Jesus in John chapter 5 is going to confront the false teachers of Israel, which he did over and over again, as we heard in Matthew 23. In John chapter 5, he addresses the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers. These were the teachers of Israel, but they were false teachers. These are the false prophets of Matthew 7 that Jesus warned the people about. He would identify something about their pride, something about what they do and why they do it. In John chapter 5, beginning in about the 40th verse, he would say, You will not come to me, you Pharisees, that you might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you. You do not have the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If a man come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and not the honor that cometh from God only? How can you believe? You cannot. Why not? Two reasons among these false teachers, and of course that can be applied to anyone. One is, verse 38 says, they don't have the word abiding in them. It's not engrafted. It's not implanted. Which means what? Verse 42, they do not have the love of God in them. They have no experience of the love of God. That's the root reason. Now because they don't have the love of God in them, what do they have in them? The love of honor. The love of boasting. The love of vaunting oneself. Because Jesus comes in His Father's name, the meek and lowly Lamb, and they won't receive Him. But if somebody comes in their own name, they will receive them. Why? Because they receive honor one of another. The word receive means to catch at or to strive after. Honor is the word doxa, which we get the word glory. It means an opinion and an estimate that results in praise, honor, glory. What is the opinion? What's the estimate that they have of themselves? What is the rough estimate they place on their value? They are good, they are righteous, they are glorious, they are elite, they are above everybody else. So they strive after that kind of honor, one of another. They give that honor, and the expectation is they want to receive that honor. This is the character of the false. This is what they're about. And everything they do is driven by a self-love and a self-exaltation. Now, what's the honor that cometh from God only? It's the glory, the doxa, the opinion and estimate of oneself that leads to a right estimate of God. And what is that? You are not good. In fact, you're vile when you compare yourself to God. You are not right. In fact, there's none righteous, no, not one. You've never done any good in and of yourself because there's none that doeth good. That's in yourself apart from grace. You've never done an ounce of good defined by God as it relates to God. Not horizontally. Men do good things horizontally. But that's not what God is talking about. So the the only honor that comes from God alone is a kind of love for God when the Word is implanted that works itself out in a right view of myself. I'm a sinner with a right view of Christ. He's the Savior. They cannot believe until that happens. So what's the problem with a false brother, a false teacher, a false prophet? Because Paul in the same chapter said, in or with false brethren, right? They boast, they glory. At the center of who they are is a kind of self-love, a self-centeredness that expects everything and everyone to serve self. And that's the character of these false teachers. Now, how would you know for application this morning? If you were seeking the honor of men, it would be by your response when you don't get honor, right? Let's say from your wife or your husband or your children or your friends. What is your response when you don't get honor, when you're not respected? That will give you a signal as to whether you expect honor from men. In fact, one of the guards for the church in the qualifications of a minister so that men don't get into these positions is that what? Titus chapter 1 verse 7. For the bishop, which is an elder and a pastor, 
same office. The bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, which means arrogant and self-pleasing. What follows is a mark when you're self-willed or you're arrogant or you're boasting. Not soon angry. Are you prone to anger? Are you inclined and disposed to be angry like a hairpin trigger on a, on a gun? Just Then you're self-willed. God's word's not mine. You're arrogant and I'm arrogant. It didn't say if you get angry. It said, are you prone, soon angry? Not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker. Striker could be a ready, ready to blows, but it also means quarrelsome and argumentative. Do you easily quarrel in your relationships? Are you quick to get angry at your wife or your husband? I mean, it's just like quick. Then God says, we, if that fits, we are self-willed. We're arrogant and we love the honor of men. Now, beloved, we, we have to admit Something in us called pride that we have to struggle against us. The good news is for the Christian, it doesn't have to govern you anymore because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So there's a fight against it. There's a struggle against it. Now these men are false. So there, there is no struggle there. They are governed by a heart that doesn't know the true Jesus, the true spirit, and the true gospel, because they're preaching in verse 4, another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel, mixing in their own righteousness with Christ and bringing in Old Testament prosperity in with the gospel, if you see the outlay of this book. And so they are proud men. Now, Paul is just the opposite. He is a humble man. Verse 7. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself, which means to lay low, that you may be exalted? Paul is modeling in his ministry the Lord Jesus Christ, who became poor for your sakes, that you may be made rich. Paul abases himself, he humbles himself for the sake of others and their good. Paul is manifesting Christ in his ministry. Now they are attacking from this position of vaunting themselves in glory. They're attacking Paul on three fronts. First in verse 7, they're saying Paul is sin because he won't accept money from the church at Corinth. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself? I'm supporting myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely. Paul's policy when he went into an area, when a church was founded, he would not receive funds from them. Because he didn't want the gospel. He didn't want it to be a stumbling block for the gospel. That was his policy. Now why are they saying he's sinning for not accepting money? That he would work. He was a work with leather. He was a tent maker. Because from Plato to the philosophers of Paul's day to the professional orators of Paul's day, they all received a fee for their teaching. And the teaching and the fee was associated with the quality of the teacher. Now, a philosopher that didn't charge a fee or was very cheap, what was the implication? Either his message is not worth paying for or he's inferior. That's what they're charging Paul with. Think of it like buying a used car. You find this wonderful used car online. It's the right make, the right model, the right mileage. And then you look at the price and it's $200. Now, what's your first assumption? It's not worth it. I mean, I don't want to pay the highest price, but a car that's $200 is an inferior car. And so they are charging Paul with sin. Now why would they do that? Because if false apostles are vaunting themselves, and one way they do is demanding money for their services, like the philosophers did. I mean, you were not in Greece and taught free of charge, or you were worthless. So these false teachers, according to verse 12, want to be found as Paul. And what was that? A true apostle. When in fact they're false apostles, uh, false apostles. And I don't think they are deceiving themselves because they're deceitful workers. They know what they're doing. The problem is Paul is messing up things because he won't accept money, which makes them look really bad. So Paul is embarrassing them by self-support and abasing himself because they vaunt themselves by demanding a high price 
for their services, and now they're messing things up because they want to be seen by Christians, even as Paul, as true apostles. But what does Paul say? For such are false apostles. So they say Paul is sinning by not accepting money because if he doesn't accept any, it messes up what they've got going on. Secondly, they said Paul was robbing the Corinthians. Remember that collection that Paul was taking up? Said Paul, yeah, he won't accept money for preaching because what he's doing, that collection, he's robbing you. So Paul takes that word and says, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. If you want to talk about robbery, I robbed other churches. He's just using their word and their criticism. What's he doing? Unmasking these false apostles. Verse 9, And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. So there were times when he made enough tents to support himself, but times when he didn't have anything. So what happened when he was wanted? He still didn't accept from them, but that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia, supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so I will also do that. I will keep myself. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said to the church at Philippi, You once and again met my necessity. From the day I preached the gospel at Philippi until the day Paul wrote Philippians, they had sent once and again to meet Paul's necessities. See, Paul would not accept money when a church was just founded. So they say, you're sinning because you won't take money. And underneath it, it's because they demanded it. And they couldn't be like Paul, true, if Paul kept doing that. Secondly, you're really robbing churches. Paul says, or the church of Corinth, Paul says, no, I was receiving money and help from the churches of Macedonia. And then in verse 11, Paul says, Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. Paul, you don't love the church at Corinth. You're like a renegade, independent kind of person. You don't want any strings attached. So you're not accepting money. you got some scam going on. You don't want any obligation or any connection with the church at Corinth. Paul says, am I doing this, not accepting money, because I don't love you? God knows. Well, Paul, why are you doing this? What I do that I will do that I may cut off occasion." How is Paul cutting off occasion for their glory? Through his humility. Through his humility. He's cutting off occasion and unmasking the pride and the vaunting of the false apostles. Now let's think about this a moment in Paul's life. This was not a unique situation where Paul lived a life where he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. But this is something Paul did throughout his life and ministry. And that's something we should be about, isn't it? We know humility is not something just for a certain season. It's something for all seasons. And that's what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 when he's going to tell the the elders at Ephesus to beware of these false teachers. They're going to rise up from among you. They're going to come in and speak perverted things. And in that context, this is what Paul says in verse 18 of Acts 20. He called for the elders. He was at Miletus called for the elders of Ephesus to meet him there. And when they came, he said, You know from the first day I came into Asia what manner I have been with you at all seasons. Like the four seasons of the year encompass the whole year, Paul says, You know the entire time what manner I was with you. He was a man of all seasons. You and I need to be Christians of all seasons. Not just one season or partial time, but all the time, Paul was like this. What what was he like among them? Participle, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Paul says, you know, in all seasons, and incidentally, Ephesus and Corinth were the two places he spent the most time in a continuous time span, those two places. And those two places, you find more written about Satan there than any other place in Paul's writing. So Paul is a man of all seasons. What does that mean? He's serving the Lord with all humility of mind, which means a deep sense of one's own littleness. He was laid low. Now, the only way you can have a deep sense of your own littleness is to have a high sense of God's own greatness. And he's serving the exalted Lord. So Paul aims, he strives to be just as little and as low in his opinion of himself as he can. Wouldn't that cripple Paul? 
Have you ever met someone that has such a low view of themselves that they can't function? Now, not in every case, but sometimes when that happens, it's because they're looking too intently at themselves. See? When someone has a really low view of themselves, that's all they can think about is themselves. That's the problem. Paul's low view of himself was because he was looking up at something very, very high. He was serving the Lord. So how did his humility work itself out in the context of these false apostles? He said, with many tears and temptations. Paul wept a lot, apparently. And he had many temptations, which means adversities and afflictions. So he serves the Lord with all humility of mind, has a deep sense of his own littleness before the greatness of God, and that worked itself out in having tears many and afflictions many, and he endured them because he's serving the Lord who sustains him. Now, was Paul crying over his affliction? I guess I've done that before. You know, my weeping is just about how bad I've got it. No, because he tells us what he's weeping about and where his afflictions are from in the next verse. Which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Lying in wait means the plotting of the Jews against me, as they all, those plots met on me. Now this is remarkable. In Paul's humility, his weeping is over the very men that are attacking him because of their lostness. He's weeping for his own countrymen, and they are the ones afflicting him. Now what does a man do that vaunts himself? We already said he's soon angry. He's bitter, he's angry, he's mad, he's self-centered, he's self-willed. And he's not going to take it. But Paul has such a low, deep sense of his littleness and a great view of the highness of Christ that he weeps over his own countrymen that are plotting against him and causing the afflictions. That's humility. That's something I need that I don't always have. That's something we need at all seasons. All right, then how does it work itself out further? So his tears and afflictions were because of the Jews lying in wait to inflict him. And secondly, his humility of mind, as a contrast to the false apostles, was that he kept back nothing that was profitable unto them, but showed them and taught them publicly and from house to house. That's a pretty good deal. You would expect that from a teacher or a financial advisor, or a counselor, or anybody. I just want you to give me what's profitable for me. So Paul says, that's what I'm about. He would not hold back, which means he wasn't timid. He didn't shrink back with fear. But he gave them in his teaching, whether it was in a group setting, corporately, or just house to house, one-on-one. He told them whatever was profitable. Now, that's humility for this reason. Because what he told them was he was testifying both to the Jews that were afflicting him and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, a false teacher will teach a half gospel. And a half gospel is no gospel. And the half gospel says believe, but it will never say repent. Because you can't demand money. You can't boast in yourself if you're telling people all the time, God demands for you to forsake your sin. So what's Paul's humility as a true messenger and apostle of Christ? What did he tell the Corinthians? God demands repentance and faith because they're two sides of the same coin. There's a man recently from a mega church in Georgia that said from the pulpit, gay people have more faith than those in the church. Let me translate that for you. That's a half gospel. Now, I can only take that for what he said. He may have said more. He may have said less. But let's just take that statement. not saying he's a false teacher. If you heard that statement, let's just take that statement and unpack it. It means gay people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but gay people don't repent. Isn't that what it means? That's not the gospel. That is deception. That is deceiving people to thinking they're okay with Jesus and they're not. Now, what is the message for homosexual activity or heterosexual activity? Homosexual activity 
and heterosexual fornication. What's the message? The message is Jesus died for both. And he's calling you to himself in a relationship by faith. And this is not a democracy. It's not even a republic. It's a kingdom with a king, and he demands you turn from your sin, whether homosexual activity or heterosexual activity, or all sins. Jesus demands you part from your ways. Now, what is that according to Paul? That's humility. Because pride says what? I'm not departing from my ways. And what will happen to these men? They'll be judged according to their works. Because they will not teach repentance. But they will teach a Jesus and a spirit and a gospel that says Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Trust Jesus. And people come. People come. But they never lay aside their sin. And beloved, the same message is for us, right? You're not a Christian, and I'm not a Christian if we just believe without repentance. So believe and repent of your sins, and then turn to fight them, right? The message of the gospel is not, well, why are you still sinning? The message is, turn and fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on Jesus Christ, because He's with you in the fight. He loves you, He gave Himself for you, and He's with you in the fight. A false teacher will not give you the whole gospel, but another gospel. Paul, in his humility, deep sense of his own littleness, what does he do? He gives you the whole gospel, and he will not keep anything back that's profitable. And what's profitable for you and me is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And there are a number of people today that will preach a half gospel, but we must not be guilty of that. We must preach the whole counsel of God, which requires a kind of boldness in humility that doesn't shrink back, but in gentleness and meekness gives the whole gospel because that's profitable for sinners. It's profitable when the doctor says you have cancer. It's profitable. When the termite man says you got termites, it's profitable. When you're told the whole counsel and not just part of it. Now, why are these men doing that? Because they're boasters and they're proud and they're demanding something from the people. Paul is low. He's got the true mark of humility. That's the true mark of a Christian. And what does he do? He tells them the truth and the whole truth. Number two, or the second comparison. The false creates burdens. The true lifts them. Listen to the wording Paul uses again in verse 9. And when I was present with you and wanted, I lacked. I was chargeable to no man. Means to heavy burden, lay away. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I kept myself from being burdensome unto you. Which means what? The men that vault themselves and make demands lay burdens on people. Low people want to lift those burdens. See, Paul is unmasking the false prophets. Now here I need to ask you a question. Do you create burdens or lift them? Do you create burdens for your wife? Or do you lift them? Do you come home and just create all kinds of burdens? Do you lift burdens for your husband? Or do you create them? Do you create burdens for your children or lift them? Do you create burdens for your parents? Do you lay heavy weights on them or do you try to lift burdens for the sake of others? We obviously see which side of the aisle we want to be on that one, right? To be a burden bearer. Now, these men that obviously exalt themselves, make demands on people which crush them. One of them was their ministers of righteousness bringing Old Testament law into it and crushing the people with legalism and rules and standards that God did not make and deceiving people into thinking to really please God, you've got to follow our rules. Who here is not susceptible to that? Let him raise his hand. My hand goes down or up. Is that the way I said it? I am susceptible to that, in other words. Matthew 23, our scripture reading, verse 4. 
the false teachers in Israel, which preceded these Jewish men. For they bind heavy burdens, grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Now get the picture here. You're in a crowd of people, and you're standing in the center, and everybody in the crowd is hunked over with a massive weight on their back, except for you. You're standing upright. Now tell me where everybody's eyes are. They're on you. You could do that for husbands. Everybody in the family is bent over for the heavy burdens you're putting on them. And there you are, standing upright. The next verse in Matthew 23. For all their works they do to be seen of men. For they love the uppermost seats in the synagogue. Binding burdens that proud men do is rooted in greed and self-love and covetousness. It's all over the Bible. And that's what these men are about. Isaiah 56 verse 11. Speaking of the watchmen, which were the prophets in Israel. The watchmen are blind. They are dumb dogs. They love to sleep, love to slumber. They cannot bark. Yea, they're all greedy dogs that can never have enough. So you just come in and lay heavy weights on people out of greed. Micah 3.11. Speaking of the princes and the priests and the prophets. The heads or the princes thereof, they judge for reward. The priests thereof, they teach for hire. And the prophets thereof, they divine for money. Tell me what their ministry is about. Putting heavy burdens because they are in love with self and in love with money. So they make demands on the people that bow them over and cripple them. And then Peter says in chapter 2 of his second epistle, he said, But there were false prophets among the people when? In the Old Testament. Even as there shall be false teachers among you. When? In the New Testament or in our day. Starting from the time where Peter wrote that. They shall bring in damnable heresies, denying even the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. Many. By whom the the way of truth is evil spoken of. Now how is the way of truth evil spoken of? By men who are speaking something about the truth. Because that's how these intruders got into the church at Corinth. That's how they gained influence. They were preaching a Jesus and a spirit and a gospel. Something kind of true, but half true. And Peter tells us, And through covetousness they will with feigned words make merchandise or gain out of you. Feigned words. Words molded like clay is molded. In other words, all their words are shaped and molded and driven by a covetous heart who wants to buy and sell people for selfish, self-seeking love, gain, and greed. That's what these men are about. And Paul says, by implication, they are chargeable. They are charging you. They are burdening you. But when Paul came out and supported himself, he lifted burdens for the sake of the gospel. Now think of Paul, what he would say, and we'll apply this to all of us, uh, how Paul may tell us that we're to bear burdens and how the root of that is going to be just the opposite of greed and the love of self. We bear burdens, what's the root of that? It's the love of God. Or we could say it's contentment. The opposite of greed is contentment. The opposite of self-love is when we're filled with the love of God. Then we can do what? Start to bear each other's burdens. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Participle follows in the Greek, bear or be bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It's love. Romans 13, Romans 8, whenever the law is fulfilled, you're loving God, you're loving your neighbor. How do we bear one another's burdens in meekness? In addition to all the ways that Paul tells us in in verse 1, it's when we're fulfilling the law of love. What does that mean? Galatians 5, 13. 
just preceding what Paul says there. Brethren, you've been called under liberty. Only use not your freedom as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Why? For all the law is fulfilled. The law of Christ. In one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite, about, uh, bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one another. Now why would you bite and devour one another? Because the law of love is replaced with the law of self. And I'm now vaunting. I'm now greedy. I'm now in love with self. And therefore, I'm devouring anybody that gets in the way of what I love or I'm putting crushing burdens on them. So how do we fulfill the law of Christ in loving one another? By the love of God, which is the first great commandment. When the love of God is filling our souls like it did Paul, then we're moving in to help restore a brother and to bear the burden of a brother by helping him with his fault. Now in that context, Galatians 6.3, this is what Paul says. For if any man thinks him something, himself something when he's nothing, he deceiveth his own self. Right, there's pride again. If I think I'm something when I'm really nothing, I'm deceiving my own self. When do I think I'm something? When I think I'm spiritual. And maybe I'm not. See, I'm not spiritual if I'm not involved in the work of restoration. I'm just thinking I am. But let a man prove his own works, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. That's an odd statement, but that's connected with restoration, bearing burdens, and pride. So the proud man will not examine his own works. So his rejoicing is in someone else, which means what? Their faults. Because the lower they are with burdens, the higher he looks. So his rejoicing is in your faults because he looks oh so good and that's what he loves. Are you that kind of man? But the humble person like Paul that wants to lift burdens because of the love for Christ and the love for the church at Corinth, what does he do? He examines his work. He tests his work. And then he rejoices independently of another. doesn't mean he's now boasting and rejoicing in himself. It's independent. What's he boasting in? What's he rejoicing in? He sees the work of the Holy Spirit in his life bearing fruit. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. And he rejoices that the fruit of the Spirit is owing to the burden bearer, Jesus Christ, who's lifted the burden, lifted, the sin, lifted all the faults, and we're blameless before Him. Because Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Labored down, weighted down, crushed with heavy burdens, like rules and standards that Jesus didn't say, or rules and standards designed to say you get justified by these, which is what the false teachers of Israel were doing. And Jesus lifts the burden with His love, with His grace, with His cross. In what better way are we bearing the image of Christ than when we too are lifting burdens from one another? So Paul is not a burden giver. He lifts the burdens and he wants to expose the glory, the pride, the boasting of the false teachers who are rooted in covetousness, which means they, they make demands, they are domineering, they subjugate people and they put heavy burdens because their entire disposition is governed by a love of self that wants to be made much of. Now, beloved, we again struggle with wanting to be the center of attention. Maybe your parents told you when you were young, you just want to be the center of attention. And it probably was true. And even today, if we are honest, we like it when people kind of dote on us, right? There's something about it. Faith feels uncomfortable, but we're in the flesh. There's something about us that still likes that. So we're not suggesting here that we don't struggle with it, but that we need to fight against placing burdens on people in our relationships. We want with the love of God to come in and lift burdens. Bearing one another's burdens and we are fulfilling the very law of Jesus Christ, which is love. Love. The third comparison is that the faults 
They only work with deceit, but the true work with truth. So Paul says in verse 13, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this folly of boasting for the sake of the church? Because such are false apostles. He wants to unmask the masquerading apostles. Deceitful workers. Deceitful workers. But Paul is a worker in truth. You find this throughout the Bible. I'm going to turn to one place, Romans 16, so we can see that with our eyes. Where Paul again, Paul addresses in so many places in the New Testament and in the oldest addressed these false people because it's so easy for us to be tripped up. Say, well, that was a good sermon. He's a good guy. He's teaching some good things. What's wrong with that? Romans 16, verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. All right, there's their pride. They're in the service of their own appetite, ravening wolves. Just can't get enough. So all their words are designed to serve their belly. Their God is their belly. Their God is not Jesus Christ. They're not serving Him, Paul says. They're serving their own appetite. So what does that mean then? And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the gullible or the simple. The simple here is not good. Gullible is someone that just, I mean, it's a fine sermon. What's wrong? It's a fine sermon. He's a good guy. Teaches a good thing. Don't be gullible, Paul says. There are false brethren and teachers that are messengers of Satan trying to devour you. Don't be gullible. Now, you don't have to be suspicious of everybody, you know. So what is Paul saying? Good words, fair speeches. Good words are plausible words that stir goodness. And then fair speeches is fine discourse. That was a fine sermon. In fact, it was good. How do false teachers, so that's the people he's talking about, Stir people to goodness, you know. I mean, he's a good preacher. He, he, he wants to make a difference in the world. He wants to get people active, get, get them active in the community. He wants them to do good, acts of good. He stirs us to goodness. What's wrong with that? Maybe nothing unless they serve their own belly. Every false teacher is going to try to stir people to making a difference in the world. And in fact, that's what's so deceptive because that's what we're supposed to be doing. How can you find fault with that? You can't. But the problem is, they are teaching things contrary to the doctrine Paul taught, which was the doctrine of Romans, of justification by faith through grace, or grace through faith, and sanctification by the same instrument, faith. And these men come along and subtly add self-effort self-improvement, and self to the equation. In other words, making a difference in the world is self-effort. So everything Paul has unpacked in this letter of Romans, they are contrary to the doctrine of justification freely, by grace, through Jesus, without any works, any self-effort, any self-improvement, and no growth in holiness by self-effort or self-improvement or doing anything in the world. Nothing but Jesus alone. That's the problem. And you need to discern that. So how will you not be so simple? Look what Paul says in verse 17 again. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. That's how you keep from being duped. You learn the great doctrines of the Bible. You don't learn them. That was a fine discourse. What was wrong with it? There's a lack of discernment. So, these false teachers are deceptive workers, but Paul is a worker in truth. He works in truth. He told us that in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, when he said... Uh, not walking in craftiness or handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's just open. He has nothing to hide. And he even says it, to draw it out of our context, he says in verse 10 of 
chapter 11, second epistle, as the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. He's telling them the truth. He speaks the truth. You can examine his life with your own conscience. He's a man of truth. He's not a deceitful worker. He seeks to unmask all deceitful workers. And what is the root of Paul's? And we'll stop here. I'm out of time. Add one more. We'll save that for later. What is, is the root, again, of Paul's freedom to speak truth? Remember, he doesn't keep back anything profitable. He's a free man in Christ in the sense that the chains that bind him, the chains that are binding the false teachers have been broken. And what is it specifically? It's implied here in terms of not seeking money from the Corinthians. Now in 1 Corinthians 9, he gives a a whole chapter on why it was right for him to do so. But Paul voluntarily supported himself for the sake of the gospel, which means he was free from the boasting and the love of money and the putting burdens on people by the grace of Christ. How does anybody get free from that? By the grace of Christ. So you remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he uses the same language, I was chargeable to no man. I came into Thessalonica just like Corinth and I didn't charge. I preached freely. That was his policy every time he went into a new region. And so what did he say was the key there? He said in verse 2, Two or four. For our exhortation was not of deceit. What are we talking about? A mark of deceit for deceitful workers or a mark of truth? Workers of truth. Paul says, Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. I was not being deceptive worker. I was not being impure in motives. And I was not using guile to trip you up or to get something. Why not, Paul? But as we were allowed to be put in trust with the gospel, that's the truth, the whole counsel of the truth of the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who's trying our hearts. So he's living his life in view of God. He's open to God in the sight of God, and God entrusted Paul with the gospel, and so he takes that truth and he speaks it without deceit, without impure motives, and without guile. What gave him that freedom? He wanted to please God and not men. Now you remember the next verse. Neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, not from you or any other man. And then he goes on to say, we were not chargeable. What was Paul free from? That kept him from being a worker of deceit and a worker of truth in the gospel. He was free from the love of of gain, flattery. You ever use flattering words? Now, why did I do that? In the, in the interest of self, I wanted something from you. Paul said, I was free from flattering words. Number two, he was free from covetousness, the very thing that governs the false teachers. Love of money. What if Paul is a lover of money? He uses deceit to get the money. He uses uncleanness to get the money. He uses guile, but he was free from deceit, free from guile, free from impure motives. Not free in the sense of sinless, but he was fighting against it. Because he was free from covetousness. Third, nor of men sought we glory. That's what the false teachers are seeking. Glory, love of praise, love of self. Paul is free from the love of praise. Three things. He was free from the love of gain, love of money, love of praise. He needed money, we see. People may have praised him, but that was not what he was after. I mean, I frankly would praise Paul if he was here. I'd say, Paul, I love your ministry. He wasn't after that. And he didn't flatter people. Because the key to Paul's ministry was the pleasure of God by his own words. He didn't seek a message to please men, which would mean it would be molded by the praise of men. It was the pleasure of God that Paul was after. And what is the pleasure of God in Paul's preaching? It's Paul's pleasure in the gospel. 
which gave him freedom, the love of gain, the love of money, and the love of praise. Therefore, his exhortation was not of deceit, impure motives, and guile. But for these men, at the heart of who they were, was the love of flattery, the love of gain, the love of praise, and the love of money. And Paul is unmasking the false teachers so that he could rescue the church by the grace of God. Because they, still some of them, were influenced by their wisdom and their their eminence and their greatness and the revelations and visions that they said they have, which Paul will address next. And the fact that they say Jesus died so you don't have to suffer and Jesus died so you could be wealthy and the good words and fair speeches they use with that message is He died for you to be rich so you can give it to others. How plausible is that? How sneaky is that? Bringing the Old Testament wealth to the New Testament which chapter 3 deals with. Jesus died, here's a good word that you may be rich so you can give it to others and make a difference in the world. That's not true. He did not die to make you rich. He died to bring you to Himself. And out of that riches, go give to people. Right? What a deceptive, subtle message. Again, I don't say that any men that say that are false teachers. But this is a false message. And Paul is unmasking it in this book by comparing his ministry with those who say they are ministers of Christ when Paul says they are false apostles. May we manifest some of the marks of the messenger of Paul because none of these things that were said except teaching itself should we not manifest, right? Even the qualifications of a minister should be in every Christian with the exception of those that specifically relate to preaching the gospel. So may the Lord bless us to recognize a false gospel and to bear even these marks of Christianity for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, uh, that You're a great God. We want to have a greater sense of our own littleness before You by looking up and seeing Your highness, Your majesty, Your glory in Christ. Lord, give us the marks that Paul had that will help keep us from being taken in by the false gospels that are being preached today in our culture. There are many, and there are different shades but they're all half-truths. Help us to rest in the fullness of the truth of who Jesus is. Help us to be gracious and humble, even though confident in Your Word. And help us, Lord, to be laid low before You. Help us not to lay burdens on one another, but to lift them because of Your love. Help us not to be greedy, but content in the Gospel. And help us not to speak words of deceit, but to speak words of truth that are profitable for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.